This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, an extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur. Also the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. That is why I'm here talking to you today. How are things out in the world? Uh, Here is a fun little bit of escapism that I'm sure you might be able to use. On the HBO Max, uh, there are some BBC shows, of which uh, I haven't recommended it before on the show, but I should have a long time ago. Uh, The British version of the show Ghosts. Incredible. The CBS uh, remake of it that is currently airing, just atrocious. Really, really funny show. Heartwarming. Absolutely throw on the 13 episodes of that that exist. Um, There is a new show that has 10 episodes out, uh, of which the wife and I were like, how is it possible that we did not know about it until two days ago? It is called Our Flag Means Death. Uh, It is the story of some pirates in 1717, uh, led by a captain who was a British dandy, a landlord uh, with family, uh, just the softest of soft men, uh, who decides one day to abandon his family to go become a pirate. Uh, And what ensues is um, it, it somehow manages to be Michael Scott and The Office on some level, uh, but shot on the high seas uh, where everyone else is an actual pirate. And it's it's truly incredible. Uh, and of course, uh, made by Tika Y-A-T-T, uh, who you'll know from uh, what we do in the shadows, uh, Thor, Ragnarok, etc., who also uh, winds up, uh, spoiler, playing Blackbeard uh, within the series. Uh, if you happen to like The Princess Bride, it shares some storylines, uh, but uh, outside of that, it's just, um, it is a thing that got me through the week. <laughs> just just an incredible, incredibly delightful thing that uh, one of those little pop culture nuggets tucked aside. Um, uh, a man that's trying to do middle management uh, from modern day and trying to appreciate everyone's feelings on a pirate ship. It's, it's really good. Shockingly good. There's your little recommendation to go out and uh, grab this weekend if you can. Um, episode one will have you hooked within the first five. I think you'll really enjoy. It. Anyway, that's one to throw out into the world here before we get started on today's excellent episode. Uh, at the end of the show, I have an interview with mashup musician Girl Talk uh, ahead of his upcoming show here in Kansas City. Uh, We have Nick's Music Corner as always, but first off, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is doing a reading of The Bump Band uh, by Nick Spacek. Uh, This was a delightful one to put together for our last magazine. We had a lot of fun with it. We hope you guys will enjoy listening to it. Here we go. Bump Up the Jams. The Bump Band's Manifestation is Worth the 50-Year Wait, by Nick Spacek. Gerald Bump Scott has been making music for more than 50 years, but his output wasn't available in any physical format until 2013. Five decades of material, a lifetime of creative yield, was somehow never an object you could hold in your hands. 
Numero Group is a Chicago-based reissue label. They hope to give Bump and the Soul Stompers, as well as the unnatural funk band, the releases they finally deserved. Thanks to a cold call, Numero Group convinced Bump they'd be keen on releasing 45s of his entire life's work. Bump liked the sound of that. They found me through the UMKC archives, he explains. I didn't even know we were over there. We were in the UMKC archives with Alan Bell Productions. He was a booking artist, and he had this big company called America's Best Attractions, and he filed some archives over there at UMKC. That's how this Numero group called me. Bump adds, It was like a validation of what we've been trying to do forever, since I got into the music business. It was like it finally got out there. As the keyboardist and band leader put it, every time he would try to get the music going with his different bands and enough money saved up to go to the studio and record, tragedy would strike. We'd save up money and somebody would say, Hey, I got a problem, Bump says, sounding weary. Someone will say, I need my money. Then somebody else will say, Well, if he gets his money, I want my money. And we'd have to start all over again. Bump and his group would eventually get enough money to record a full-length record in studio. The fruits of their efforts was the soon-to-be-released 1983 album, Our Music, recorded under the name The Bump Band. With Bump on keyboards, Robert Clarkson on guitar, Robert Kelly on bass, Terry Grimmett on sax, Wanda Bird on vocals, and Herman Lacey on drums, Our Music is an album that combines elements of soul and funk from the late 60s and on. It also showcases the greatest swath of Bump and his group's talent. Our Music's eight tracks bring something familiar, yet new and intriguing, to the world of funk and soul. The listener is initiated with a playful call-and-response opening of Don't Lie to Me before being led through a series of worthy soundscapes. The lounge-style instrumental jams as heard in Snooky's Vibe, the party funk of Can We Party With Ya, and Are You Ready to Ride, and the brilliant slow cruiser that is living in the past. The story behind the album is all too familiar. Bump Band, a la Detroit proto-punk band Death, or the hard power pop of Memphis's Zweeter Z, is finally reaching appreciative ears after being shelved for decades. As labels Secretly Canadian did for Death, and Light in the Attic did for Zweeter Z, Chris Garibaldi's Kansas City label Lotus Pool is looking to bring the Bump Band to the music world at large. Garibaldi and Bump's son, Jeremy, work together. Jeremy, a budding rapper, had Garibaldi over to listen to an album he was recording. The music backing his raps was a variety of songs recorded by his dad's band. It was an amazing mix of 90s party rap and 70s and 80s funk, Garibaldi explains. From there, the pair began working together with an eye toward releasing Bump's album with Lotus Pool. During that time, Jeremy asked his dad for a particularly special birthday present. He'd heard Don't Lie to Me when the Bump Band practiced it in his basement when he was a little boy, and he wanted a recording. Amazingly, Bump not only found a studio version of Don't Lie to Me, but he found the rest of the Bump Band album, says Garibaldi. A day after Jeremy heard the album, he texted me, I need to play you something. He came over to the studio with a bottle of rum. We drank and listened to the album. Three songs into the listening session, I turned to Jeremy and said, We have to put this out immediately. Bump's version of the story is similarly electric. Upon Jeremy's request to hear Don't Lie to Me, Bump set off on a treasure hunt. One of the recorders that I've written most of my songs on, it's kind of broke a little bit, and I had a hard time trying to find the songs because my recorder shuts off and I can't find anybody to fix it, Bump explains. I don't have the money to buy another one right now. I started going through all my tapes and stuff and I couldn't find it. Then one day I saw it written on there on the tape. Oh man, there it is right there. As Bump relates with some glee, he put the tape on and heard the first track. As soon as it is finished, the next began, and another after that. It turned out Bump had taken the album, recorded all those years prior, and mixed it down to a two-track recording before storing it in his attic for nearly 40 years. I really looked at the tape, because I write real small and I didn't have my reading glasses and I couldn't see that small writing, Bump continues. 
I put on my reading glasses and I sit and it said, Bump Band Album 1983. I forgot all about that. Thus the story comes back around to the rum-filled listening session. Bump passed the recordings to his son, who played them for Garibaldi. Now the Bump Band's hour music is ready for the public's ears. Of course, there was a bit of work in between discovering the tape, pressing it to compact discs, and creating the digital files. As the Lotus Pool press release states, the original analog recordings were damaged and the music has been digitally remastered. Additionally, Bump had to unearth the names of the other musicians on the album. I couldn't remember who was in the group because I've had so many bands through the years with new and different players, Bump explains. I had to figure out who was in the group, and that was really hard to do. Hard in that Bump had to listen to the recordings, and then, he says, he could hear the different people's personalities, the voices with which they played. Some of them had played with me for more than just the Bump band, Bump points out. One player might have been in another group that I had, and I remembered how they played. By the sound of their instruments and the way they played an instrument, I could tell who it was. I had to step back 30 years and just keep at it. I mean, it took me probably a couple of weeks to really figure out who everybody exactly was, and then it came to me. It was bittersweet work, though, he says. Grimmett, Bird, and Lacey have all since died. When asked whether this impending release feels a bit melancholy, Bump gets choked up and needs a moment before he can continue. It's sad that the album got lost and we didn't get a chance to really do anything while everybody was still around, Bump says after a moment of silence. I'll cry listening to the album. It makes me tear up, just thinking about how we could have all been together because we played together really, really well. Everybody got along with each other, and it would have been fun having the bump band out there. It's just sad that the album got lost and we didn't get a chance to do anything with it way back when everybody was here. There are many lifelong legacies of music making embedded in the notes of our music. Bump himself started playing when he was at East High School in 1968. First, he formed Bump and the Soul Stompers, which became the unnatural funk band, which then begat the bump band. For 40-plus years, he worked as a mail carrier, writing songs while delivering mail. Now in his 70s, he gets to see the music he's been working on all his life get a proper release. I'm super happy that the album is getting out, Bump says. Some of the other band members are not around to hear it, but their kids will be able to hear what their mother and father did. The world will be able to hear what we were, where we were headed. I knew where we were headed for some top billings because, like I say, I write songs all the time. We could have been out there forever, like Earth, Wind, and Fire and all those groups. That was what I was headed for when we were doing this album. While it might have taken decades to get Gerald Bump Scott and the Bump Band's music to the ears that need it, the music feels like it's been waiting patiently this whole time. And now, it can live for decades to come. And now it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. The Royal Chief's new single, What You Started, has a basic theme, according to the Kansas City rapper. In an email, he described it simply as, quote, a hip-hop-slash-funk record about meeting a woman at the club and getting lost in a drunken night, end quote. Interestingly enough, as Chief explains in a Facebook post, What You Started is a track he's been sitting on since 2019. While the Royal Chief might have originally been worried that the track didn't live up to a certain expectation of perfection he had for himself, his recent turnaround and decision to release it is to the listener's benefit because it's a goddamn banger. You can find more music from the Royal Chief at his website, theroyalchief.com, or on most social media platforms at The Royal Chief. Here's what you started. Back on my bullshit. Shoot a shoot, nigga. Guess who back with a full clip? 
Need a fix, baby, I got the toolkit. God flow drip, nigga straight out the pulpit. Met her in the club, it's a dub, she was showing love. I was in my bag, started tab, gonna run it up. Down another cup, you a sad girl, I seen enough. Caught a nigga bluff when she asked, am I keeping up? Lost in the limelight. I might regret this shit in hindsight. Your lick is telling me you might tie. My dick is telling me the time's right. You got me in and out of zone. What you on tonight? Cause I ain't trying to be alone. Baby, listen, I ain't missing none of these bitches in my phone. Girl, I'm higher than a drone. Call that Uber, take us home. Like, off that shit so wavy. And only you can save me. It's on and I can't stall it. I'm gone and I can't call it. Caught that look you gave me. And I've been feeling lately. I'm gone and I can't call it. Girl, look at what you started. What you started, girl, look at what you started. It's on and I can't start it. What you started, girl, look at what you started. I'm gone and I can't got it. Do you wanna ride? Tryna catch a vibe. Tell me what you like, tell me what you like, yeah. Tell me what you like, tell me what you like. You ain't got a high. I see it in your eyes. Tell me what you like, tell me what you like, yeah. Tell me what you like, tell me what you like, yeah. Tell me what you like, tell me what you like, yeah. Is it getting pipe in this Uber right, yeah? Throw it to the left, have them take a right, yeah. Love of my life just for the night, yeah. Tell me what you like, tell me what you like, yeah. Is it getting pipe in this Uber right, yeah? Throw it to the left, have them take a right, yeah. Love of my life just for the night, yeah. It's on and I can't stall it. I'm gone and I can't call it. Caught that look you gave me. I've been feeling lately. I'm gone and I can't call it. Girl, look at what you started. What you started. Girl, look at what you started. It's on and I can't stall it. What you started. Girl, look at what you started. I'm gone and I can't guard it. Let me know, girl, before I let you go. Know these swears just ain't for show. I put this dick inside the soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How it feels. Say it's good, say it's real. I ain't got a word tomorrow. I got it's time to kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So today I'm talking to uh, Greg Gillis, uh, who uh, operates under the name Girl Talk. Uh, In 2006, he released an album called Night Ripper, uh, which basically defined the genre of mashup music. Uh, It is one of those things that went beyond two songs being layered atop each other uh, and into the sort of thing where you and your friends would sit down and try to draw a map of the number of different samples being used, what the songs were, so on and so forth. It, it, it was equally fun to listen to and dance to as it was, uh, for, for music folk, uh, a puzzle. Um, the hilarious part is that, um, he put it together while working in a biochemistry lab. <laughs> he was a scientist by day. And, uh, during the week he would, he would do his, science stuff and on the weekend he would do his dj stuff and it went from being like small 
DJ things to uh, eventually reaching the point where he's being flown to Europe to like be a part of big festivals. But he never told anyone back at the lab that he was doing that. They'd be like, what'd you do this weekend? He's like, ah, nothing, I guess. Um, And at some point it became his full-time career. uh, And it's just always one of those origin stories that like back in 06, when I heard it, I was like, that's, the best thing I've ever heard. Like the guy just couldn't stop being a scientist, but didn't want the scientists to think less of him for knowing that he was a DJ on the weekends. Uh, Cause they would not have understand understood quite on what level this is. Anyway, uh, this is an interview I did with him ahead of his upcoming show here in Kansas city. Take a listen. Hey, um, yeah. Uh, excited to have you come into town. Uh, I feel like I bought these tickets two years ago. The show keeps getting rescheduled. There's at least one night that they didn't send out an email saying that it had been postponed again, that I drove to the venue and was like, oh, man, oh, there's there's no guy here. That's fine. fine." (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Um, we've pushed it back even more than you heard about. You know what I mean? Internally, there was like so much dialogue of like, oh, let's push it back and we'll mount it then or this or that. So I feel like there's been like, you know, six reschedule. You know, it's, it's crazy that it's actually happening. What is that process like for you where it's like, I, I understand that there becomes like a financial component and an emotional mm-hmm. investment to be like, do we think three months from now this is fine? Like, how, how did you guys go about that and then finally settle on like, let's do it now. Let's actually do it. At this yeah. Point. <laughs> I, I mean, it was bizarre because no one knew. And then everyone like, you know, I think my booking agent and that, that team, they had, you know, their information coming in and they obviously they're in the industry of you know trying to figure out when it would be safe to tour so they maybe you know knew something i didn't but at the same time it's kind of like no one truly knew so it's like you know what i was hearing from the news i'm like telling to my booking agent being like i don't know i think the vaccine might be out this or that you know so yeah it was just (laughs) it was just impossible and it was just like it seemed in retrospect very silly just in terms of being like we're just lost you know we don't know when this is going to be possible so um you know if we kind of just kept pushing it back and then you know if it seemed like it wasn't right time we pushed it back again and then um i can't remember even i I felt like it was initially scheduled for last november at one point and then we pushed it back to now and then a lot of it was based around specifically not a lot of it but a, a component was the pittsburgh show um was supposed to it's like an anniversary of this venue that i played at the first show at um it was supposed to be a 10-year anniversary now it will be a 12-year anniversary um but it's the only outdoor (laughs) show of the tour so i was supposed to be seasonal that it needed to be outdoors so um so that helps so we pushed this to be the earliest that we could do an outdoor show that that's the last show of the tour so just a lot of moving parts and then i also have this project coming out with with Khalifa, Big Crit, and Smoke Dizza, this album. So that's coming out in two weeks. So we wanted to do it close to that. So I don't know. There was just really no perfect time. And, you know, like I said, and it's complicated with all of the people who tour with me, including tour managers and lighting guys. And they have other bands they work with. And, you know, they're not making any money. No one's making money. You want to get on the road so people can, you know, put food on the table. Um, specifically for the crew and for venues and everyone. So, yeah, I don't know. It it just was really chaotic. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of surreal that it's happening now just because for a while I felt retired. Like this is this thing I used to do. Um, so now it's like all, all of a sudden I'm getting on a tour bus in a week. 
are you 100% confident you're getting on the tour bus? <laughs> and that, that's the thing too, you know, it's like we, you know, cross our fingers. It's like, you know, things can happen during the tour with health issues or crew and all of those things. So um, you just never know. And you try to play it safe and, uh, you know, hopefully we can make it. And just at this point, you know, you just do the best you can do. And um, it is what it is. You know, so, some tours get stopped midway or there's issues and, you know, I feel like it's a, a bad omen to even bring that stuff up. So it's like, let's just focus on the positive And, you know, I will be in Kansas City at some point. You know what? I fucked that one up. Forget that I asked the question. <laughs> uh, so I've been waiting to ask you since 2006, what was it like to work in a lab all week and then pretend that you weren't a world-class DJ traveling to Europe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's very it's very me personally like <laughs> just 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 because like I think someone else in that situation would have maybe just told their coworkers at the time or something like that but it just was like the fact that when it was very underground and before it took off it was like you would see me at a show at a warehouse space or DIY art gallery to 15 people and it would be me, you know, ripping my shirt off, going crazy. So it was just kind of bizarre at that. You know, I grew up in the <laughs> underground and playing these small shows and very much a part of my whole life. But as far as like having coworkers who are a little older than me with families, I just didn't want to try to explain that to them. Not that I was embarrassed about it or anything. It just it was too complicated. You know, in the workplace, I just kind of, separate those two worlds um so once it took off then i was in too deep that i couldn't just because i had been working at the job for two years or more so i couldn't just all of a sudden be like oh by the way i do this thing on the side so it was like this little <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a lie but it was just i didn't tell them the truth and then it was kind of spiraling out of control as the girl talk thing got bigger because all of a sudden there was like one moment where the local paper in pittsburgh wanted to feature me on the cover of the art section and I was like, all right, you can do that, but I need to be wearing sunglasses, <laughs> maybe like a little disguise or something, just because I can't have that paper like delivered to my coworker's house with me on the cover of it. So, yeah, it, it was very bizarre. And, you know, I, I was, you know, in that period, though, you know, I was, Night Ripper came out when I was 25, 24, 25. So it was in that kind of just post-college period where I had a real job, nine to five in, in the, you know, in the cubicle, in the lab, all of that. But at the same time, it was like I still felt like a college student a little bit or post-grad, you know, just in that in-between period. So it was almost like felt more pretend at the job. Like this, I had more imposter syndrome at the job of like, what am I doing here? And then on the weekends, when I go play the shows, that that felt a little bit more natural. This is This is kind of what I do. We play these wild shows and get wasted and you know dance parties and all of that stuff um but yeah it, it was a it was a crazy period and um yeah I, I was happy <laughs> that i got out of it and after the job after i quit and then things kind of even grew from there i was in contact with a couple of the co-workers and then they obviously found out about it and they ended up like going to a bunch of the shows and were into it and it obviously wouldn't have been a problem it just was like a little you know issue that i spun for myself that was unnecessary well, also, it meant you were one of the only DJs in the world to have health insurance through a day job. So, that, yeah, that's <laughs> <Right>. okay. <laughs> right, right. And, I mean, to be honest, it's like with with music in general, I have done it since I've been 15, you know, in, in bands and projects, but it was something I never thought of as a job or anything I intended to ever live off of just because all the stuff I made was 
very weird and left field and I, I didn't expect a lot of people to like it. And I, you know what it is when you're making experimental music, you know, there's a small audience for it. So, um, yeah, I always was like, I need to have a job. So, so that when I was at the job, I wasn't like, Oh man, my dreams aren't coming true with music. It, it wasn't like that at all. I didn't have dreams to make into music. I, I had dreams of just staying in the underground and doing weird music on my own time. So, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the game plan. And it, it is make it nice to have the health insurance and a job and some resources. Cause you know, um, you know, it, it makes touring and doing stuff like that a little easier. I didn't have dreams is maybe the bleakest quote I've ever done. In a musician <laughs> interview. Uh, it, this might be apocryphal, and I've just always wanted to ask you, but uh, when you were making Night Ripper, is it true that you were doing, like, all the, the BPM work using a calculator? Yeah, a, a little bit, because it's funny thinking back now, because I, I produce mainly on Ableton, and I've been using Ableton right. for a long time. But uh, on that's, that's Night... sort of when it came out, and everyone I know was like, yeah, this computer will match it up. And then you came out and was like, He's using a TI-82 to be way better than we are. It's like, oh, shit. Well, yeah, it's funny thinking back because I think all of Night Ripper and all of Feed the Animals, there was no, you know, on Ableton you have, uh, um, you know, I, I don't even know how, just the grid. You, you know, I don't know how you describe it. It's on a, basically any, you know, uh, music-making program, just the grid where you can put stuff. So I didn't use any grid-based program at all on Night Ripper or Feed the Animals. That was all doing loops in a wave editor and then putting them into this program called audio mulch where you're basically triggering the loops. So everything was kind of done by hand and um, which is interesting looking back because it's just such a labor intensive way to make those albums. Like if I was tasked at making <laughs> Night Ripper all over again, I, today I feel like I could make it in like, you know, 10 times the speed that I did back then. But um, yeah, so it was like a lot of that is just literally taking loops and, and like, you know, using actual math to just figure out the length of it and things like that. And just even uh, quantitizing stuff by hand in these weird ways that like you can use that Ableton now has all these great time stretching algorithms, all the programs do. But back then you kind of had in, to come up with like inventive ways to do that yourself. Um, and looking back on something like Night Ripper, I do think there's a unique sound to it and that, um, you know, similarly like on Ableton, you can take something and speed up, or slow down the tempo without changing the pitch. It's very common. It's, again, every program can do that now. But back then, the way I was doing it with a um, wave editor and audio mulch, uh, every time something was sped up or slowed down, the pitch was altered as well on that record. So the, the pitches are all slightly different than the original songs. And there's something to that that, that gives it a little bit of a rawness, a character to that album that, again, like, if I was making something like that today, I wouldn't have made it in that way or there'd be different techniques, but kind of some of the limitations result in some of the, 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 the sound to it. And I think as someone who kind of grew up on a wide variety of music, there's lots of music I love that is lo-fi, you know, like guided by voices or something, you know, something to the production on those songs that works for the, that style of music and other style of music. Sometimes you want some glossy, big production, but I think for, Night Ripper specifically, and, you know, some of the other albums got a little bit more fine-tuned, but there is something nice and raw there. It, it hits a certain spot, which I think, you know, looking back now as a 15-year-old album, I think it um, has a unique sound to it based on kind of the technology and the, the time that was used. How does it feel to have uh, effectively launched an entire cottage industry that continues to thrive in places like SoundCloud? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's uh, um, it's interesting now seeing. You know, I I feel like there was a wave around 15 years ago where I saw a lot of people doing related things to what I was doing, like uh, sample-based music, which was in mashups and stuff like that, which was cool. You know, I think that's the way it works. I think I started off very much influenced by Kid 606 and John Oswald and all these people and really trying to emulate what they were doing. And then, you know, the goal is there to take that and then kind of hopefully you carve you, you kind of learn loosely to try to do something close to what they're doing. Then you kind of have your own sound. So I, I saw that back then and it's wild now, again, like 15 years later to look on TikTok and it's just mashups everywhere. And <laughs> there's like a right. new wave and that's just kind of the way it is. Cause I thought there was kind of like a dip in that for a little bit. And now, um, you know, it's just everywhere. It's just a thing, uh, which makes sense to me. It's a, it's always a fun way to take something that's familiar and really recontextualize it and do your own thing with it. But um, yeah, even I think five years ago, if you would ask me that, there's no way I would have predicted how prevalent like mashups and remix based culture would be right now. It's, I know it's always there, but it's really just seems like, you know, just everywhere with more youth based media stuff like, you know, TikTok and, and social media stuff. I, I believe my college roommate, uh, a mechanical engineer introduced me to mashups via the first Diplo album. I was like, this is insane. He puts two songs on top of each other. And like a few months later, we got Night Ripper. We were like, there is significantly more than two songs here. And we really <laughs> got to like run the math on figuring out what's going on here. So like, yeah, you, you elevated a genre very, very quickly. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I think it's funny. Cause I, you know, there's, there was an, a different level of influence. Like, I, I, just a lot of the rap albums and hip-hop albums I came up on had a lot of quick edits. You know, when you look back on Tribe Called Quest or Dayless or NWA, Public Enemy, all of that sort of stuff, Bomb Squad production, you know, there's just so many quick little edits and things like that. That's something I always liked. This is, like, detailed production. And then also I, I felt like in the early 2000s, I started to get into – IDM and, and stuff like Square Pusher and Aphex Twin and and kind of a lot more underground versions of that sort of stuff. Um, and in that world, it's so detailed and just, you know, the level of precision, that, that's something I like. So I was trying to kind of take that influence of that idea of doing remixes and mashups and, and apply that kind of IDM influence and, and also that influence from a lot of it. 80s and 90s hip hop I came up on and that was kind of the the point there where it was like oh this this works was this like and also to be honest it's like people have cited it as maybe uh, uh trying to make fun of what I do but like even like a jock jams or cheerleading squad mixes and stuff like that like I I always like that stuff as well too you know it's like square pusher jock jams all of it um so so, so that was like you know I felt like there's some influence of that too I, I love stuff like that so yeah it's kind of like all of those things coming together but there was a moment there I think because I prior to Night Ripper I had done you know, the music I was making was all sample based, a little bit more experimental. And there was uh, bits and pieces of kind of straight up mashups in there. And then when I was assembling Night Ripper and I kind of had the idea of what it was going to sound like, I remember just being a few minutes into it, like because I, I basically built it in chronological order. And I remember being, you know, five or 10 minutes into it and just showing it to some friends and saying, thinking like, I think this is unique. You know, I, I think this is kind of like its own thing. Like I haven't heard anything like this where it would just, if I could maintain this pace for a whole album, I think that would be a thing. <laughs> um, so, and I, I just had kind of that little light bulb moment of being like, Oh, I, I do think this is kind of uh, unique here. Well, and there's something so fascinating about everything that you just referenced because like, 
so many of those albums or any Beastie Boys or Beck album from the 90s or something, the way that licensing for music sampling changed, like you couldn't make any of those albums today, which is why mm-hmm. like when you started doing things like when I, when I saw the announcement that you were remixing a Beck song, I was like, how's he going to do that? Because can they afford to do it the girl talk way at the time? Right. There, there is a, an unreleased version of that Beck remix with like 50 samples on it or something. I don't know. It might, it might be floating out there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like, that's, I kind of, there was no rules to what they wanted. So that's kind of what I threw to them. And I remember there being uh, an element of like Kanye's, um, what it was, his, uh, I'm drawing a blank, uh, the, his first single, uh, the uh but the first kanye through the wire yeah yeah one of my favorite beats i love it um but i remember there being a through the wire sample on there and other things that were like current to that time um but yeah it's like you know it's one thing to you know do that on your own and just throw it out there and it's another thing to try to do that through a label or have an official release it's kind of especially at that era 2006 there, there were two different worlds but that was a sweet spot for doing the sort of things i was doing because you really could you didn't have to be on Spotify. You didn't have to do anything like that. You could have official CDs, but you didn't have to. You really could just have your own website, throw some right. MP3s up and, and get it out there. It's a real sweet spot for doing something like that. Cause at that era, you know, Radiohead did it as well. A lot of people were doing it just, you know, as long as you had somewhere to get the MP3s out, they could travel if they had an audience. So I guess that brings us to like your first collaborative album, Full Court Press, which is the one that's going to release in a week here. Like, how, how long did you spend looking for people to collaborate with on an original thing, or did did this come together? And did you work with? Did you think this was going to be a, a song or two, like with them, and then it sprawled into an album, or, or did you guys sit down and like really plan out like this is a, a full concept, start to finish? We've got this thing. Yeah, I so I did an EP with Freeway in 2014, and so that was the first time I really produced for anyone. And then after that, I wanted to do another project, like whether it was going to be an EP or a full length. Um, so I was looking for that for that whole time. I mean, I, and then in that time, I ended up doing a lot of one-off songs with other people. And, and then I think the focus for me became less on doing a project, and I was just enjoying getting in the studio with various artists I like and just doing songs and um yeah. you know and I and I felt like I learned a lot in that time period but I think kind of starting maybe five years 2017-ish I was like I really would like to do another project um so it it actually started that so I know Wiz just through the Pittsburgh connection from we met before either of us kind of had careers we met in 2006 I actually um he had a song on the radio in Pittsburgh and I went to go see him live at a club with like 50 people. And um, I actually gave him a CDR copy of Night Ripper before it was out. I remember I was like passing him out to anyone who I could meet, just trying to get the word out about it. So uh, so we have a relationship just from that. And then like we had played some shows together and I've run into him from time to time. So we had a relationship and then Big Crit, I was always a fan of. And then we played a show together around 2011. He came to Pittsburgh um, and played a show with me, and we kind of stayed in loose contact because of that. And then I met Smoke Dizza around 2017 just because I liked his music and wanted to work with him. So it initially started with me 
just reaching out to those three artists individually to just work on music. And they weren't the only three ones. There was a variety of other people in that time, some stuff that, like, wow. you know, I had a song come out with T-Pain and various things. So when I was working with them, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be a song or an album or what it was going to be. And uh, as I was working with them, the plan at some point was to do an individual project with each of them. And um, they kind of came out at a similar time period. And, you know, they have a lot of early connections in terms of touring together, being on each other's music. So there was a string, a run there where I had sessions with Crit and I got him on a Wiz song. And then like a week later, I had sessions with Dizza and I got him on a Crit song. And when I went home, kind of like how I work with my master problems, usually I have just a ton of material and then try to figure out, okay, what can I cut out and just really get down to the best parts for me. So when I was listening to the music with the three of them, I kind of, you know, had another little light bulb moment of being like, oh, I, I kind of like this stuff together as as a whole. These, these individual songs kind of would be cool. Um, but I didn't think there'd be any way to get them in the studio together just because of schedulings and management and everyone has their own careers and all of that. But I reached out and, and they were down. So we went to L.A. and got together for a few days. And, and even by then, I just wasn't sure what it was, what it was going to be because you just don't know how it's going to turn out. And then when we went to L.A., it was super fun and, you know, very productive. And uh, it all kind of basically came together there. And after that, I had the material. And then I kind of treated it like my normal albums or shows where I really cut it up and changed some things up. And, you know, some of the songs, they're on beats that they didn't initially rap on and, and things like that. It's a lot more nuanced and subtle than my normal albums. But I definitely kind of, to me, I gave it the normal treatment that I would an album of just really laboring over every second and making sure every little transition's good and and again kind of cutting out any fat just beginning to end I just want it to flow nicely um so I, I know it sounds significantly different than Night Ripper or Feed the Animals or All Day um I feel like the general attitude and approach was similar um but I was right. just trying to do something that was you know obviously I'm a fan of all these artists and I was trying to do something that was somewhere in between my world and their world. Yeah, I, I think if you handed me this sight unseen, it, I, I would not have been able to pin down, oh, that's a Girl Talk album. Uh, right. So, yeah, I what were your influences on this? Um, just, I mean, I love just a lot, you know, it's kind of song to song. I, I really wanted, and to me, this kind of connects to the Girl Talk thing, when I listen to a lot of modern, modern rap records, um, a lot of times there's like a hand, couple sample based things here or there, and sometimes some of the production might sound similar on certain songs. I just really like the idea of doing an album where every single song is based on a sample and they all have a distinct feeling and vibe because that's kind of the way it is with this sample based music. It's like that sample was recorded in a specific place and it has so much to it. You know, there's so much backstory to each sample and, and there's so much you know just the melody and everything it just is each one is very unique so I wanted um the project just every song to kind of stand out on its own but at the same time to be a cohesive whole and I think with a lot of the songs like uh Put You On or No Singles or uh Fly the Coop with Crit a lot of that stuff a lot of my favorite music is really um you know kind of taking soul samples and juxt to, you know, kind of like mixing it with um, modern production. So it's like, it's a very much like a 3-6 Mafia influence to taking a soul sample, but then having, you know, skittering hi-hats and, and 
big 808s and kind of modern modern rap drums uh, on it. So I feel like a lot of that, I don't, you know, I, to me, again, I hear like bits and pieces of that on people's records, but I felt like I want that to be a real core of this album, having songs that kind of have that feel to it. So, um, yeah, and there's like a full range of stuff on here, but a lot of it's just like kind of like my favorite sample-based rap production. Uh, but ultimately, it comes down to, in preparing for this and over the past few years, I've just made hundreds and hundreds of beats. So it's like each of these songs on it are the ones that kind of stood out to me in terms of just these are compelling melodies that really gel with the vocalists. And and like with my mashup work, like going into it, I take acapellas of all of the artists of Crit, Dizza, and Wiz, and I play them over these beats before I even get in the studio just to hear what their voice sounds like on it and all of that. So I, I feel like the, the art is similar and really trying to find something that, that gels with them. I think the component that's taken out is I, and, and even when I was done, you know, I had a natural inclination to be like, oh, maybe I should chop this up and have, you know, three beat switches <laughs> on every album or on every song and you know, have this be a hundred different beats. And it's kind of like, well, that's not what's working for this music. You know, you don't have to force it into that lane. And I think that's a big part of collaboration in general, where it's like you got to find what works here between both of you guys. And that's something I really love about it, where it's like, you know, I, uh, you know, it's just it's really a piece of them. It's their project as much as it's mine. And, uh, you know, it's a unique kind of intersection of our work. What should people be expecting from the live show? The live show will be, I mean, I, I feel like it's always evolving, but I, I think the style of the tunes is, you know, kind of in the ballpark of what I've been doing, where it, it relates a bit more to the mashup albums. And um, in preparing for this tour, I kind of was excited to actually go back to a lot of older stuff that I hadn't played in a while. Cause I, I just know at this point, those albums, for a lot of people, they've been listening to them for 10 years. So for a period of time, I, I wouldn't, play too much stuff straight up from my old albums. I'd kind of be focused on newer stuff. But at this point, I think it's going to be a fun mix of newer mashup stuff, uh, you know, referencing the albums. And I think stuff from the new project, Full Court Press, a lot of that music, which I love and I'm very proud of, just doesn't, uh, won't work in the context of my show. So a lot of the stuff I'm playing from the album will be remixed. I'm like already remixing and mashing up stuff from that album into the show. And I think that's like a nice little intersection too of, of you know, kind of my previous work in the new album. But um, yeah, so I mean, it should be kind of an all out thing and, you know, really like the 2022 version of, you know, kind of what I've been working on. I feel like that's always where it's at, just taking a lot of new contemporary pop and rap and doing remixes, but also really touching on a lot of that older stuff that I know people enjoy and, you know, have listened to for years. So 15 years in, you're still never done with a song, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is crazy how many like times I have at this point too. It's like with some of the stuff, even on Night Ripper, it's like I when I p would have played something from that album live in 2010, I might do it differently and, and kind of work on it. And then 2015, still working on it. So it's like I find myself in 2022 still like tweaking Elton John and Notorious B.I.G. together, you know, 15 years later, just like <laughs> the, the newest the newest edit of that mix. Um, and uh, that's fun. You know what I mean? It's always something where I'm kind of constantly tweaking it. And, and there are, are also things where it's like some – instrumentals or acapellas from those old, older albums sound amazing over something new. You know what I mean? It's like, 
I never stop messing with those things, always trying out different combinations. And like, that's a fun thing with the show too, taking something familiar from those albums that people know and doing a, a, a remix of the remix. Um, so yeah, I enjoy doing that work. And, uh, to be honest, it's like, I felt like when I was touring all the time, it was slightly overwhelming, just always trying to come up with new stuff. But now kind of with the time off, especially over the pandemic and two years later, um, I've been really locked in the past month or two working on the show stuff and it's been fun. Like I haven't spent this much time working on remixes and mashups in a long time. And it's really kind of got me excited about it again. So I'm definitely uh, excited to actually play some shows. Well, Casey couldn't be happier to finally be hosting you. Can't wait to see the show. Uh, travel safe. Uh, and I will see you there. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the Streetwise podcast. I've been your host, Brock Wilbur. Please check out all the excellent work we are doing each and every day at The Pitch uh, over at thepitchkc.com. Grab our magazine all over the metro area. Um, we have a new magazine that we sent off to press yesterday. Uh, boy, howdy. Um, <laughs> the new issue, it slaps. It's just uh, it's just an excellent one uh, following up on a series of what I think is the best work that we've done since I got here. Everyone is just firing on all cylinders. We have new staff members that are chipping in. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it's just pretty. It's just a pretty one. I kind of want to frame it and look at it all of the time. It's, it's a great one. It is also, uh, you'll find it out on stands uh, on April 1st. It is our traditional 420 issue. Um, in previous years, we haven't had much pot-related content because I'm not the biggest pot guy in the world. Yeah, three years in on this, we found writers uh, that uh, really know what they're doing in the whole cannabis space. Uh, it is it is most of the magazine, and it is crazy. Uh, plus, Liz Cook delivers what you would expect uh from a Liz Cook article. Uh just one of one of the favorite one of our favorite things she's ever written for us. So like strap in for that one. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh take care of each other out there. Be safe. Kitchen and we will make it through. Bye 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 bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.